Welcome to Strike Talk. You probably don't care who the mayor of Topeka was in 2020, but you should. She was Michelle de la Isla, a spectacular public servant with a future so promising that in her third year as mayor, after five years on the city council, she was asked by the state Democratic Party to run for Congress, Kansas's second congressional district, and she did. Topeka is an Osage word that means a good place to dig potatoes. But as soon as Mayor de la Isla filed to run for that seat, Topeka officially became a great place to plant bullshit. Her Republican opponent was State Treasurer Jake LaTurner, known statewide as Jake the Snake. As you know, the GOP playbook in 2020 was simple. When in doubt, accuse your Democratic opponent of being a socialist who wants to defund the police. Neither of these charges were even remotely true of Michelle, but Jake smeared her anyway every chance he got in a district that was already largely red. One ad in particular stuck. That June, after the murder of George Floyd, Michelle had joined many of Topeka's citizens of all colors in a march for peace. Beside her on that march was Topeka's police chief, Bill Cochran, who is white. Jake took the video of the march, digitized Cochran out of it, and ran it, painting Michelle as an enemy of police everywhere. The chief was so incensed that he publicly called on LaTurner to suspend the ad, pointing out quite accurately that not only had Mayor de la Isla not defunded the police during her term, She'd actually increased the police budget by 22%. And the four biggest newspapers in the state castigated Jake as well, calling him a liar. But Jake kept the ad up. The repetition was working. In politics, a lie is a hiccup, but a lie repeated is a campaign. And Jake won. The defund the police lie, delivered with breathless consistency, worked all over America in 2020, kneecapping dozens of Democrats who had never uttered the phrase and did not believe in it which is how we got Kevin McCarthy as speaker and authoritarians like Jim Jordan running committees. Throughout, Hollywood watched in horror. How, we wondered, can people knowingly mislead and get away with it? The answer, of course, is repetition. Say it enough and it starts to feel true. For that's how falsehoods have always gotten baked into our country's consciousness. Whoppers like Columbus discovered America or Abner Doubleday invented baseball or the trickle-down economics, the idea of cutting taxes on the rich, would somehow make the poor less poor. Repetition sold us on the domino theory, which pulled us into the Vietnam War. It convinced us that Vice President Dick Cheney must have been telling the truth when he said, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction, pulling us into another tragic war. The Red Scare, based on a lie the right never stopped telling, devastated our country and our business, bringing with it injustices we will never erase. Lately, the messaging of the AMPTS, at least for me, has begun to follow this pattern of repeating distortions of fact over and over in the hope of making them true. For instance, the companies claim their offer of August 11 will provide meaningful protection for screenwriters. That is a giant distortion of fact. Their proposal is so loopholed and caveated that it would actually apply to roughly five screenwriters per year. Five. Similarly, on many rooms, the companies claim to be making historic concessions but their offer carves out all shows on broadcast and basic cable, and that's just two of the loopholes. It leaves far too many writers unprotected. On streaming, they keep saying that a series, once it's on Netflix, is never remonetized in any way, and therefore the reuse of those shows has no value. Really? Having season one of Stranger Things on that site isn't a value? Having a library from The Mandalorian doesn't help Disney Plus keep customers? Ted Lasso doesn't help Apple? Now, the companies might say that they have not yet found a metric that accurately imputes that value, 
That's real. That's a fair argument. So let's find a metric together to use as a placeholder for three years, one that will begin to compensate the people who make those shows so great. But saying the shows themselves have no value in this landscape, no matter how often you repeat it, won't make that true. And while we're at it, let's please stop saying that the Guild is unreasonable or intractable or unwilling to make a deal. I was the co-chair of the negotiating committee three times. All we do in our caucus room is try to get a deal. We are always open to negotiate and always eager to find a path that will work for the companies. After all, if they fail, we die. So no, the writers are crazy argument, legendary in its repetition, will not fly. Similarly, goldfish do not have a memory span of only three seconds. Swallowed gum does not stay in your stomach for five years. Paul Revere never yelled the British are coming. The deal the DGA signed was not historic. Offering us limited transparency in streaming with zero money attached to it is not groundbreaking. You can't call yourselves the defenders of creative freedoms while keeping writers out of writers' rooms and making it impossible for them to support their families. And restarting talks on August 22nd, just to restate your offer from August 11, which the Guild had already countered on August 15, is not negotiating in good faith, even if your new PR firm tells you to keep saying so. Lincoln once said, you can fool some of the people all the time and all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And you can't fool the writers and actors now walking the picket lines at all. Today and every day, I'm reaching out to my friends on the other side of the table. No, you're not to blame for the Red Scare, the Vietnam War, trickle-down economics, or Jake LaTurner beating Michelle de la Isla. But you are standing behind a narrative that in many respects is demonstrably untrue. And you are doing nothing to convince the 171,000 workers now picketing you to change their minds. The truth is, no one in town and no one on Wall Street is watching your behavior and coming to the conclusion that you want to put the town back to work. We think you just want to defund the writers. To discuss that with me, I now have two esteemed guests. Please meet Richard Rushfield, founder and columnist of The Ankler and Pete Aronson, who's a former president of Regency Television. He was an executive VP at Disney TV and AMC, where he supervised all aspects of IFC's brilliant programming. He's also a producer and a Writers Guild member. Okay, guys, first of all, thank you for coming and welcome to Strive Talk. All right, so I want this to be a town hall. I'm looking for solutions here. What are they? What am I not seeing? Pete? Uh, I would just say, uh, relative to your opening, uh, it's a shame giant distortion of facts has so many letters in it because I would replace the Hollywood sign uh, with that phrase as it uh, goes directly towards what we're talking about today, but also towards a larger, in my opinion, macro view of the business, you know, hence the term Hollywood accounting. You know, that giant distortion of, of facts used to be the alliance versus the unions. Now the giant distortion of facts is inside the alliance itself. And I would say the first giant factual distortion is the bill of goods that was sold to us by Silicon Valley, which is streaming is profitable. Streaming is more profitable than the old model. In fact, let's disrupt, sorry, destroy the old model because our new streaming model, and again, giant distortion of facts, our new streaming model is way more profitable. Well, here we are, lo, these many years later, and it turns out it's not. And by the time this is all done, 
again, giant distortion of facts. You think just flipping through tiles on Netflix and streaming is what this is going to look like. It's not. Netflix is going to have ads. Netflix is going to have sports. Netflix is going to have news. And they're going to need those things to become consistently profitable quarter to quarter. And there was the giant distortion. They thought they would be profitable just doing what they're doing now. They sold everyone on Wall Street on, if we get to 200 million subs first, we win. And in a way, they did. They won streaming. However, they didn't win in the sense of they're not profitable because like tech companies love to do, they put growth over profit and they put their borrowing at a very low interest rate over everything else. And once they were done doing all that, here we are at the end of it. And I think, like I said, they will have disrupted disrupted slash destroyed a model that in a bizarro, circuitous way, they will come back around to reassembling in order to get profitable. Richard, do you see it the same way? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I mean, I I, th I think a lot of this is is sort of the the twilight of the baby boom. Is is the lens I see it through. It's the the same thing that's that sort of disrupted and and take a wrecking ball through uh, much of the economy and and American culture here. That you have a generation that has been at the helm since the early '90s, essentially. Um, running the studios at a time when enormous imagination was required to meet the demands of a new age. And they just sort of took the easiest path to to sell out and, ch and, and chase this uh, Netflix chimera there. And they've 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 wrecked the industry. And I think I, I, I think that Netflix has run circles around everyone else in this game. And I think in the strike, they are running circles around this game because you have a generation of leadership that really has no vision for what the uh, industry could be and what entertainment could be and how to construct a new model around it. So they're all just chasing this thing that they can't possibly succeed at and is uh, que of questionable value even to the people who are winning. From the beginning, I've brought people on this show that can educate me. So educate me. Right now, Netflix pays a ton of money up front, pays no money back end. So they expose themselves to much greater risk and much higher budgets. What if Netflix just licensed the show for three years, paid someone a normal rate up front, paid them more in success, paid them less in failure if nobody watched, a la Nielsen ratings or box office. And then at the end of those three years, if Netflix wanted to, it could participate in selling that uh, particular product to secondary markets. Wouldn't that be better for producers, writers, directors, actors, and Netflix? I feel like that is ultimately where it is headed, but probably after they take a wrecking ball through the entire industry as it stands and rebuild something, because Netflix is going to need to figure out more ways to make to make uh, money off of uh, what they've got. And they want to have more flexibility with it there. But they, they're locked into this, this system of these buyouts and total ownership. And um, I, I, I think the, the need for greater flexibility hasn't come to them yet. I would I would agree with Richard. That is where it's going. I don't know what the timeline looks like. Is it 60 months? Is it 120 months? Uh, you already see it with 
sort of the arms dealer approach of Sony selling their stuff to whoever the highest bidder is on streaming. Seinfeld is an example of a show exactly what you're talking about, Billy, except that Netflix didn't make that show. They just licensed it. And, you know, it used to be on Hulu. Now it's on Netflix. It may move to a different streamer. It's ultimately owned by Sony. They can do with it what they please in terms of selling it aftermarket. But to your larger question, Billy, yes, that's where the model's going. And to Richard's point, not until they kill everybody else. And that's and that's the Silicon Valley tech. Humans don't exist. You're just a zero or a one to us mentality, which is what has brought us to this point. If Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount, and Lionsgate, and AMC, and all the sort of smaller tertiary players all go out of business, Netflix doesn't care. And neither does Apple, and neither does Google, and neither does Amazon. Most of those companies, by the way, aren't even in the media business writ large, or making shows, rather. They do it as an ancillary side marketing bit. But I think you know, we're going to get there. We're going to get to the point where they have to license it to or from or to other people. The question is, who's left when we get there? And and I, I think for them, the, the key to how you make this profitable is you don't have eight competitors. You have, you have one or two. If you're in an eight-way bidding war for every project and every piece of talent, it's going to be hard to make that profitable. But if Netflix ends up being one of, say, three... So 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 that's the first goal, and they have and they have to get there, drive drive all the others out of business, and then they can think about those other things. So we see a bunch of legacy companies that are, that are allowing Netflix to drive the train in terms of negotiations, even though Netflix seems to be the company that can best withstand this work stoppage, and we're all wondering why they're allowing this to happen. One theory that I'm hearing is if you take a company like Paramount, which is in such massive debt, the thought goes that for Paramount, it's better for them not to solve the strike this quarter so that they can have three months of spending so much less and starting to pay down their debt. Of course, it's a very short-sighted theory because they're going to get hammered for it in 2024 and 2025. But that is an operating theory. Pete, does it make sense? I, yeah, I mean, that's the free cash flow argument, which is that by not making content this entire year, they will load up on free cash flow, makes their balance sheet look really good. Uh, in my more cynical moments, having been an employee of large media companies, uh, I would say that's because they get bonused off of that at the end of the year. So you'll see lots of execs getting bonused off the fact that they have five, six, seven billion in free cash flow on the balance sheet that they wouldn't usually have because they haven't been making anything. I think that's one aspect of it is it's purely financial, Billy. Yes, you're correct. Everyone wants to pay down their debt and they can use some of this free cash flow, especially the companies that are upside down, like Warner Brothers Discovery that has a market cap of $29 billion but has $50 billion in debt. Paramount is a good example, $10 billion market cap, $17 billion in debt. So if you own a million dollar house and you have a $1.7 million mortgage on it, you'd probably want to pay that down. So I think a lot of this free cash flow money will end up doing that. Also, Zaslav, et cetera, these people have promised Wall Street they're going to pay the debt down. So I think that's a, a pretty good reason, Billy. I also would say, and this is something, you know, I've been I've been a member of the Guild for a really long time. And one of the things I've seen, again, having been somebody who worked in inside of these big studios, is that there is a constant inaccurate assessment by the writers of the disdain with which they are viewed by upper management at large studio companies. And I think that hinders our ability to have an accurate conversation 
with the studios because we don't internalize, because we're writers, uh, we don't internalize uh, the fact that we are generally viewed in an extremely dismissive way, way beyond even the cliche or what we think of when we think of studio and large companies being dismissive of writers. It's worse than you think. What was your experience when you were a senior executive um, at Regency, which, met, which meant you were a senior executive at Fox, and there was a work stoppage. How were you treated um, as an executive since they knew that you were also a writer? Uh, well, I can tell you I was thrown out of one meeting uh, at, at News Corp, which was a division president meeting. The person who was running the meeting stopped, looked at me because he had known me a very long time and said, aren't you in the Writers Guild? And I said, yes. And he said, get out. That guy, by the way, is a very good guy and a very prominent player in the business to this day. We constantly underestimate how dismissive the studios really are of us. And now I'll get really dark with it and say, with the advent of AI, I think in their in their heart of hearts, they want to do away with the Writers Guild completely and someday writers altogether. And, and what I mean by that is they'll use AI to build it up to the point where it looks kind of like a script, but it's not very good. And then they'll hire someone, they'll give them a new title, a story editor or some sort of thing to rewrite it. That will protect the copyright for the studio. And that's what the future will look like. It'll be a lot less of how you and I grew up, Billy, with like six writers in a room, you know, breaking story and a lot more like a person rewriting uh, AI-generated outlines and stories. I don't know how, again, I don't know how far off that is, but I think that's where the studio mindset uh, would like to see things go. I think they want missed mortgage payments. They want missed tuition payments. They want missed car payments. They want all those things to coalesce to the point where it improves their bargaining position and hurts the union bargaining position. So I, I, I think uh, it's not high on the list of priorities for any of the legacy companies, and it was never on the list. Union, any union activity is not on the list of any tech company, period. So I think both of those play into the fact of why this is dragging out so much longer than it should. Richard? I mean, I would say while you're getting dark, looking for why the legacy studios don't split away from the, uh, the streamers, you you got to ask what what do the legacy studios really want right now? What is their their goal? And it, their goal hasn't seemed for a little while their their first priority to make make more money uh, with and with filmed entertainment. Uh, they 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 seem to have other things in mind. And you you get the sense that you have three studios here that are that are essentially for sale. And the people who they are looking to to buy them are the people that we're suggesting they break away from. Um, so that doesn't help that. And it, and, uh, it also doesn't help making, making a big new deal on their own doesn't help make them more, uh, sellable at this, at this point. So it's when you're negotiating against companies that, that sort of don't want to be in the business anymore, uh, it, it makes things really hard. Do you think we are, um, heading towards a landscape? This is a question for both of you in which the only companies in the business are Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Disney? Uh, yes, Amazon, Apple, Google, uh, who view these, these content businesses as ancillary marketing costs versus actually, I love movies, I love to tell stories. I don't think the Amazon, Apple, Google mindset cares about that. I really don't. I think, I think the content is merely a marketing ploy to get you to buy toilet paper or another iPhone 
for you know subscribe to Google One. And the and the scary part about that is 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 Apple might have you know a tough board meeting coming out after a factory fire or somewhere, and might decide yeah maybe we should get out of entertainment. I mean they, we we don't quite understand why why Apple and Amazon are in this. Uh, so the fact the idea that they can flip that switch at any moment is always possible. Is there someone who can walk in there and make these two sides get back in the room? I mean, I, I, you're the one who told me, Billy, that these things get solved when one or two or three of the CEOs are in the room with one or two or three of the negotiating committee members. And it comes down to, like all deal making, here's the three things I want. Well, you're only getting two. Which two matter? And you sort of, you haggle it up, which is business affairs, as long as I've been in the business has been that. Here's the list of six things I want. You're only getting four. Pick the four you really want. I think Ted Sarandos probably sees himself as the Kenny Ziffrin, Peter Chern, and Bob Iger 1.0, not 2.0. But I think he sees himself as that guy. I just don't think he can wrangle everybody else inside the, and I use the term loosely, alliance to do it with him. And I think in the in previous iterations of this, it did work that way. And, to, and I've heard you say it worked that way, Billy, once everyone got in the room. I just don't know if Bob Backish and you know Brian Roberts see it the same way that Tim Cook and uh, and Ted do. I just I just don't. I think it's a problem. You're hurting cats, and I think it's a real problem because everyone has such disparate motivations. Well, not to be overly cynical, but um, I believe that the reason that the AMPTS um, is waiting for the guild to counter is because I don't believe the AMPTS is capable of countering. I don't think that room can actually get a proposal together because they want such different things. And Richard, as you said, they want to destroy each other. They're, they're, they're competing with one another for market share. So to me, this argument about how the guild has to counter next is, is uh, a smokescreen. Um, but I am clearly not objective. Among the tech companies, there is a complete lack of respect for what we all grew up on in this business, which is it's a relationship business. You know, you know, you know the the sort of the leaders of the companies are all invested of this of the legacy studios are all invested in the same thing, making TV and movies. That's what they do. And I just think the tech companies are not part of that and they don't believe in that. And as a result, you can't really get them all in a room to sit down and, and hash it out. I just, I just don't think they're interested in that because they're not interested in unions, period. You know, that's why those companies look the way they look. You know, people go to the bathroom on the warehouse floor in, at Amazon for a reason. And they avoid unions at all costs for a reason. And that's not where the studios are. The studios have a long history working with the unions and a long history of making TV and movies. The tech companies are not interested in either of those things, really. I would just say, uh, call for the, the mayor or the governor just to, to reserve a conference room at, uh, at the uh, Universal Hilton or something and say, I, I'm calling on both sides, show up here 10 a.m. On, on Thursday, and we're gonna t talk this through. You know, the, the failure of leadership in my mind goes back, they, they, they never should have been where they were in May. This should have been, a year before uh, on a track just to, to sort these things out and understanding uh, what the what the issues were and what it took. So it, 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 it should never have come down to a showdown at that at that point. And I think that's just, you know, you 
you, you look at this era in Hollywood and it's just a serial failure of leadership on every big thing that comes up. They, 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 they never, they never miss an opportunity to drop the ball. And this, and this is yet another one. And I would just say to Richard, point completely taken and well said regarding leadership of the legacy companies that drove off the side of Netflix mountain, chasing the fallacy of profitable streaming. And that goes for every single guy, and it's all guys who are at the head of every single one of the legacy companies. They all bought it with the sole exception, I think, of Sony, who was sort of like, well, if you want to watch something, you can do it on PlayStation. We're not launching a streamer. And I think that was probably pretty smart of them. They're sitting there, you know, out of all the legacy companies, they have 106 or $107 billion market cap and only $30 billion in debt. I mean, it, it was such a historic uh, moment of a business dismantling itself, um, chasing a unit that you had, you had businesses that had issues, but were 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 still uh, were still profitable with 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 Kate with cable and with theatrical, and they both decided to let's let's see how much damage we can do to both of these profitable industries. I mean, think of if they had decided. In response to Netflix, they if if they if they hadn't said let's build rivals to Netflix, they 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 said, you know, let's protect our our cable business, and we know we know it maybe maybe it won't last forever, but it can last a lot longer. If Netflix was still the one uh, the one giant business, if you didn't have uh, Disney Plus, if you didn't have HBO Max, if you didn't have all of these. Would the majority of U.S. houses have canceled their cable at this point just because they can only have just because they can have Netflix? I think, I mean, it, it, you might have a, a cable business with problems, uh, maybe not headed in the the right direction, but you'd have a lot more time to try to solve that in ways that 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 are not totally destructive to yourselves. Let's say for a moment that you guys were Lou Wasserman, and you could get these people into a room together. What would you say? First of all, I'll say macro. If I'm the studios and the tech companies, my macro view of this is we're all working towards a point where we don't have to deal with these unions, period. So knowing that, we can make concessions now because 10 or 15 years from now, it's not going to matter because we'll have some sort of AI amalgam way of doing what we need to do with these unions and they won't be an issue. So that's my macro picture. From that, I would derive the following. Number one, on room size, yes, minimum of three writers plus the showrunner. It's up to the showrunner how it, that person wants to compose the room, but we'll, we will stipulate that. And the other thing I would say is, to the point of educating writers, each writer has to, under the new rules, go on their script from budget process to post-production. So you teach the writer of their draft all the way from the budget to prep to the pre-production meetings with every department head, all of the stuff that we know that we have to do as showrunners. They're on set for their entire episode shooting. Then they go to post. They're going to sit through all the edit cuts, all the notes. They're going to go to the mixing stage. They're going to polish the episodes and do the finishing and colorizing, and then they're going to lock it. And that's how you're going to teach the writers what I think is a legitimate issue, which is there's no apprenticeship system anymore. It's gone. And one of the reasons the apprenticeship system is gone is because the uh, all the shows are short orders. So that's my pitch on the room size. The next thing I would pitch on is uh, 
that they're going to they're going to kick the can on AI. They're going to find a way. These are the studios, by the way. They're going to find a way to kick the can the same way they did on electronic streaming. We don't know what it is yet. We're not really sure. Uh, we'll we'll put together a blue ribbon commission that can meet every few months and figure this out. I think that's bad, but I don't know any way around it at the moment with studios because they're tied to it the same way they were tied to streaming. And by the way, in 07, 08, they knew exactly what streaming was. They'd already talked to Steve Jobs. It was 99 cents per song instead of buying the albums. They know. They know what's coming in AI. They don't want to talk about it. That's why they don't want to talk about it. So on AI, I think they're going to try and kick the can, and I don't know that there's anything we can do about it. They'll make, you know, sort of very nice motions towards working with us on AI, but I don't think they're going to ultimately. And then the last thing is money, which is just give it to them. Give the writers the minimums that they're asking for. Uh, I don't know what to do about the transparency because Richard's right, but the only thing I would say to counterpoint what Richard said is despite their lack of willingness to do it, every one of these guys is putting in an AVOD platform, and the minute you let the advertisers in the front door, they want to know exactly what eyeballs they're paying for at exactly which time and which show associates its brand values with their brands. So if you're looking for women 18 to 34 to buy a BMW, Somehow, Netflix is going to have to divulge that information to BMW. Otherwise, BMW is not going to buy ads on there. And that's where this is going. As you see, by the way, Billy, to what you said earlier about Charter, part of the Disney settlement is that they put Disney Plus, Charter pays for Disney Plus for all its subscribers as part of its new bundle. They drop Disney XD, they drop FXX, they drop Nat Geo, they drop a bunch of cable channels, but they add Disney Plus. In so doing, they're only adding the AVOD platform. They're not adding the SVOD platform. So when Charter buys it for you, they're buying it for you so they can get more ads. And they're only offering the ad-supported version of Disney+. And towards that end, transparency is going to have to come into this business somehow, some way. It may not be Nielsen-esque, but there's going to be have to, have to be some sort of transparency if you want to get dollars out of advertisers, period. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you, uh, I, I come from an industry journalism that went through this whole exercise where once every article was part of, you know, the Los Angeles Times where I worked, which had 800,000 readers during during the week and 2,000, 2 million on Sunday. So you said, wow, my article was read by 2 million people. Uh, and then the internet came on and people found out, oh, my article was read by 3,000 people today. Uh, and, and if you, the... The uh, unveiling of data across journalism was, I'd say, enormously destructive and uh, led to every, you know, led, led to people pursuing that in, in some very uh, bad ways. You know, journalism has different priorities than, than entertainment does, so it's nothing. But I, I think you, you, a lot of people will be sort of stunned at how few people can be watching something that exists on Netflix. Netflix, if it's not heavily promoted. Netflix is assiduously pushing everyone towards their AVOD platform. That's why it's the low cost. They're like, well, it costs so much more for the premium with no ads. Why don't you just get the low cost one with ads? It's why Disney Plus AVOD is part of the charter package now. They want everyone to go to the advertising level of the streamer. Why? They need the money. It's like every other form of television that we've been involved in in our lives. You need the advertisers to pay for it. If you don't, you get premium like HBO or you pay more for Netflix or Hulu or whatever with no ads in it. But the truth is they need the money. That's why.
They need to be profitable every quarter. That's, that's what I meant by this whole thing is circuitous, and it goes right back around to you're just rebuilding the cable bundle. Yes, you dropped FXX, you dropped Disney XD, you dropped Nat Geo, but you added Disney Plus with ads. So what is that? You're just adding a cable channel to it. That's all. You just, Charter just rebundled its bundle. Um, all right, so Pete, let me circle back to uh, AI. I agree with you. The language is going to be critical there and probably uh, uh, the companies will try to make it vague. Do you think it's possible that the guild can insist that at least the companies use ethical AI that um, that attributes sources? I, I don't know because the key to that, Billy, is uh, I'm going to say regulation, but that's not really what I mean. Uh, the key to that is a deep knowledge of data and and content. And I'll give you just a really quick story. I was messing around with the Bard uh, GPT, that's Google's version of OpenAI, and I typed into it, write me a movie that is guaranteed to make $500 million worldwide. And what it replied to me was, with a very sort of by-the-numbers, middle-of-the-road show that sort of mixed basically, uh, you know, dragons and uh, Game of Thrones with 15-year-old female YA audiences. So there's this young girl, she rides dragons, she fights off the evil part of the empire, she becomes the queen, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked at it and I was like, well, obviously this is just a bad studio exec saying, oh, people like YA, people like Game of Thrones, I'll just mix those together and we'll have a movie that works. Then I thought a couple of days later, that sounds really familiar to me. And it turns out it's basically the plot line of a series of books called The Dragon Riders of Pern which were written, written in the 70s by a woman and then her son in the 80s. And I optioned it in 2003 when I was at Regency and sold it to the WB as a TV series. We never made the pilot. We had the script written by Ron Moore of Battlestar Galactica fame. But the show didn't go forward. That's not the point. What I realized was the, G, the uh, Chet GPT or the bard of Google had ripped off the entire thing. It had just basically gone and ripped off somebody else's series of books and saying like, hey, here's your movie. And my question is, if if it, you didn't have my not that great memory of sort of like, wait a minute, this sounds really familiar to me. And it turns out it's a sort of obscure series of books. Uh, I don't know how you police that unless somebody is constantly saying that, oh, they stole that. That's a plot line from show X. I don't know. I don't know how you're going to be able to police that. I really don't. If the studios unleash this, you are... Uh... You, you, you have just uh, enabled a generation of, of lawyers that will make fortunes off uh, suing the studios uh, to come along. I want to ask you guys a last question as we start to wind this down a little bit. So it seems clear that where streaming is going is some sort of imitation of basic cable where you're going to pay for it and watch ads. Can those streamers make a profit because it is very much in the best interest of writers for companies to thrive. Can Disney Plus become profitable? Can Peacock, Paramount Plus become profitable? Or do they all have to merge together to compete as a behemoth with Netflix? I think it's very hard when you have this level of competition and they have no pricing power and no and and every everything becomes a uh, a competition for every project. 
I agree. I think you you have to have live sports as part of the mix if you're going to a make money on AVOD platforms and b attract eyeballs for day and date event uh, type of programming. And I it looks to me like the MLS deal with Apple is sort of them dipping their toe in the sports waters. And I don't know that any of these companies are really going to be able to compete with Netflix. Amazon's already there with baseball and football. Uh, I don't know that any of them are going to be able to compete for sports rights. And I think that ultimately will cripple the legacy companies because they will not be able to put together an AVOD package with meaningful live sports in it because those live sports will have gone to streamers because the sports leagues like the NFL and Major League Baseball want the money and they're getting paid giant sums. That MLS deal is amazing for the MLS um, as an example. And then once those streamers are no longer, the sort of tech streamers are no longer interested in competing for sports rights, they will revert to the leagues themselves. And we will all be watching NFL games on an NFL app. We will all be watching Major League Baseball games on the Major League Baseball app or the NBA app. And the leagues will just keep the money in-house at that point. But for now, it makes money for this. It makes sense for the sports leagues to sell off their rights because streamers are overpaying. Well, that would lead me to ask if that's true, then what happens to broadcast, uh, which is so heavily dependent on, on sports now? I think, I think the future of broadcast is eerily similar to what the CW has turned itself into. The future of broadcast to me is, A, it gets spun off from its uh, legacy company. So, for example, Disney sells ABC. Who do they sell it to? They do it like the transaction for CW. The station group, in that case, Nexstar, or in this case, the ABC station group, goes to private equity, borrows a bunch of money, and buys the network and converts it to something that, like I said, looks like CW. A ton of reality programming. Very little scripted, but if you do script it, it's produced outside this country, preferably, and a mix of cheap sports. So I think what you'll see is that the legacy ABC, NBC, uh, CBS will start to look like, and Fox, by the way, look at Fox right now. Look at the Fox network right now. Sports and a ton of reality. Now, and what scripted they do, the sort of Lone Star 911, et cetera, is few and far between. And I think that's the future. Broadcast looks like, first of all, they all get spun off from their companies that own them now, and which is funny because we all lived through FinCEN where they got put together with those companies. And now they're going to end up selling off the broadcast networks because it's a dying business. And the way to keep it alive is to make it look like the CW. We're going to leave it there. I want to thank you both. As always, when I talk to you guys, I get educated. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you, Pete. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The last time I was co-chair of the negotiating committee, 2017, our negotiations were highly conflictual. We were fighting over work span and the definition of a short season and a bunch of other things that the Alliance swore they would never give us and then did. Our talks had already broken down once. When they hit a second wall, Carol Lombardini canceled the catering to our caucus room, kicked us out of the building, and then issued a press release stating the gigantic lie that we had stormed out of the negotiations. She does stuff like that. All negotiations, by their very nature, involve some deception. You try for as long as possible to hide your bottom line, the proposal that you're willing to accept, and sometimes that line moves, and you have to be cagey about that too. But that dance takes place inside the negotiation itself. It doesn't go public. It respects news blackouts. 
and it absolutely does not countenance a deliberate distortion of the facts to be broadcast citywide. I wasn't there last month when these negotiations melted down, but I do know this. The CEOs of the Alliance walked into the restart of the talks with a non-proposal that they knew would be rejected because all they were offering was a speech about how great their August 11th offer had been, an offer the Guild had already responded to. They entered the meeting having already written a press release in anticipation of the talks breaking down again, which they sent out to the world 20 minutes after the meeting ended. This was their big move, their knockout punch. They would circumvent the negotiating committee and go right to the membership, kind of a violation of labor law, by the way, and convince the members to take their offer. Except it failed. The members hated the offer, and the reaction throughout the industry was one of scorn. This was not hard to see coming, and yet it shocked them, which means not only were the companies lying to us on that night, they were also lying to themselves and to each other. I don't have a remedy for this. I'm not sure one exists, because as our two guests just told you, the companies in that alliance do not have one voice or one shared goal. How can they? They're not all in the same business, and each, as we've just heard, wants to devour the other. But meanwhile, our town is suffering. People are losing their homes and leaving the business entirely. The misery is everywhere. It's real pain, the likes of which a CEO will never understand. And it's hitting everyone, the whole city, massive unhappiness, brought on because a bunch of companies chased streaming, lost billions, and now expect us to pay for it. In the face of all that, the Alliance has to do something more than just the usual negotiations dance. It has to act, it has to lead, it has to tell the truth to itself and to the rest of us. Ready for something sentimental and ridiculous? It has to behave with love, at last, finally. It has to be its best self, courageous enough to trust and to be generous, to take care of its own. Because this is not politics we're talking about or a myth about Columbus. This is our craft, our profession, our lives. That deserves more than a giant distortion of the facts. I want to thank my guests, Richard Rushfield and Peter Aronson. I want to thank my brilliant producers, David Janov and Hannah Baker. Please join us next week when our guests will be Patty Chayefsky, Sidney Lumet, and William Holden. This is Strike Talk. I can